This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Jean Kwok on her new novel, The Leftover Woman. Jean Kwok is the internationally best-selling author of Girl in Translation, Mambo in Chinatown, and Searching for Sylvie Lee, and a contributor to the Sunday Times bestseller, Marple 12 New Stories. Both The Leftover Woman and Mambo in Chinatown are currently in development for television by fifth season. Her work has been published in 20 countries, and she has been selected for numerous honours, including the Sunday Times EFG Short Story Awards shortlist. And today we're here to talk about Jean's latest novel, which is The Leftover Woman. Jean, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, then, tell us how you would describe this novel. Well, The Leftover Woman is about what happens when a young woman in China gives birth and is told shortly afterwards that her baby had died. However, she finds out a few years later that her daughter had not died but had been placed for adoption by her own husband to a wealthy American couple in New York City. When the novel opens, she has followed her daughter to America to try to get her back. So there are basically two women in this novel, Jasmine, who is the woman you're describing from China, and Rebecca, who is the adoptee or the adopter in New York. Very different women, very different backgrounds, which we'll talk about as we talk about both of the characters. Jasmine's story is told in the first person, Rebecca's isn't. And what we're going to do is we'll talk probably mainly in the first half about Jasmine and then Rebecca later on. So tell us, first of all, who Jasmine is when we meet her at the beginning of the novel. Well, Jasmine is indeed the birth mother. And she is very much based on me, as both women, Rebecca and Jasmine, are. You know, she is someone who has been brought up in China and in a society where women were not valued. And she is a casualty of the one-child policy in China, which limited families to having only one child for decades. And because of this policy and because of the cultural preference for male children, as of today, there are 32 million more Chinese men in China than women, which means we are missing 32 million women. And so what had happened with Jasmine was indeed her husband wanted to leave their spot free to possibly have a male child and therefore decided to place their daughter for adoption. So Jasmine has been oppressed. Jasmine was not wanted as a child herself because she was also a girl. And at a certain point, when she finds out that her husband has done this to their daughter, she decides enough is enough, and she takes action. Yeah, I was going to raise this later on, something that you you just said, which is that obviously the, the Chinese introduced this idea, this uh, one-child policy. I mean, it's a, you know, it was a political decision, presumably, you know, to deal with the, you know, the burgeoning population, China at that time being, you know, the um, the most populous country on the planet. And 
this was introduced into a culture which is, as you've said, foregrounds men over women and male children over female children. And like, to what extent, I don't know, was this, how did they not know that? Was this a mistake? I don't mean the policy, <laughs> but the fact that it was like, did it never occur to them that this would happen? <laughs> right. I mean, that's an excellent question. You would think that this would occur to someone before making such a wide sweeping change. It does not seem to have. I mean, and indeed, you know, just to try to understand, I mean, China was a fairly rural population where people were used to having large families with men and women, but you needed to have a lot of children because not all the children survived. And then the children that did survive were kind of your insurance. You know, they were your means of taking care of you if you were old, if you were sick, if anything happened. And the way the culture worked was that they believed girl children married out of the family and the male children extended the line. So the belief was that if you only had a girl, your line basically ended. And aside from the physical end and physical destitution you might face in a society that didn't have kind of governmental policies to pay if uh, you needed health care or something like that. The other problem was that the whole system of religion was based on ancestor worship. And so we keep our souls alive and the souls of our predecessors alive by praying to them again via the male children. And so people thought if you don't have a boy, well, then it means that not only are you kind of damning your body and your soul, but also that of your parents and your grandparents and, you know, everyone you revere and love and so on. So indeed, you would think that somebody would have thought of this before implementing such a policy, or maybe they just didn't care and thought that it was necessary anyway. And there's obviously um, another major exception here is that some people happen to have twins, and that is what happens in this case. So Jasmine has a has a twin brother. Tell us something about her background growing up in China and her relationship with her family. Well, Jasmine um, was one of the first casualties of the one-child policy in the novel. And so she was left on the side of the road to die by her parents or, you know, maybe to be picked up. But I did interview people who had been in this position where this exact thing had happened to them. And they, you know, were brought into their family because the grandmother couldn't bear to see this happen. And the grandmother saved the baby. But of course, you know, the penalties that were levied for an extra child were immense. I mean, there are life destroying level penalties of, you know, a year salary and ostracization and, you know, humiliation and really, really things that could end someone's life as they knew it pretty much. And so what they did in the novel is what a lot of people do in real life, which is that they pretended that Jasmine was a twin because she was close in age to um, a child that they already had in her extended family. And so, you know, I think it's a case where the village basically knows, but they kind of look the other way to accept this twinness. But of course, she wasn't actually a twin. She was an extra child they had saved. 
And then Jasmine is ostensibly saved again, certainly in the view of her family and the village, by her husband, Wen. So tell us something about who he is and what happens. Well, so what happens is that Jasmine actually grows up to be a beautiful young woman. But the problem is that beauty in a society where you have no power is a curse. And so she is treated like a commodity. And also because of the shortage of women in China, this began to happen more and more where, you know, unofficially girls would be engaged from very young ages because there just weren't enough of them. And Jasmine is essentially sold by the people who bring her up to a wealthy man named Wen, who's quite a lot older than she is. And she genuinely loves him with all of her young heart when they first get together until she learns that he's not worthy of that love because he has mistresses. And then finally, this thing with the daughter really shatters all of her illusions. And at that time, she has a friend in the village, Anthony, um, son of another family. And when the novel starts, she seems to have, well, accidentally ran into Anthony in New York. That's what happens in the first chapter. So tell us something about her relationship with Anthony then and now. That's right. I mean, what we've been talking about is all backstory. It's not really in the novel itself. When the novel opens, Jasmine is in New York City and she has paid the mafia to smuggle her in. Um, She doesn't have the right papers. She's trying to find work. And she feels extremely lost, as one does when one is, you know, cut off from everything that one knows. And so she's in the restaurant looking for work. And she runs into Anthony, her childhood friend, when she was 14 years old. And um, she's so happy to see him because he is you know, not only is he a beloved figure from her past, but he kind of reflects her identity back to her in a way that immigrants often no longer have because they are in a society that doesn't recognize who they are and what they've done before they came to this new society. But sadly, the meeting does not go well because Anthony is angry and hurt that she cut off their friendship when they got married. She had no choice, but yet he um, still feels bitter about this. But also running into him means a connection back to her old life, which she is running away from. She is trying to hide from. And we see in lots of ways that she is trying to hide the person that she is, not least her appearance. She dresses very frumpily and is actually an attractive woman, which we see she has to gain employment because she's... um. She owes money to the people smuggling gangs who have um, bought her over. And we see this when she's going for employment at a place that turns out to basically be like a strip club, um, an exotic dancing club. And she's having to basically come out of her shell and dress attractively and provocatively and how difficult this is for her. That's right. That's right. As she is, he is a connection to who she was at home. And logically, she knows that she's better off not having contact with Anthony. But, you know, she he was kind of really her friend and her family. They were not romantically involved, but she loved him. And so she, um, you know, doesn't want to let him go, especially because she clutches a glimpse of a red thread bracelet on his wrist 
And she wonders if that could possibly be the same bracelet that she had given him many, many years ago. But indeed, she's very much in hiding, having suffered for how she looks. And yet she has to confront this because she winds up getting a job in an Asian strip club as a cocktail waitress. And then just one other thing about Jasmine or alluding to Jasmine before we we go on to talk about Rebecca. I was reminded often in this book of uh, a couple of years ago, I interviewed uh, Chan Julie Wang about her book, her memoir, Beautiful Country, because America is referred to in this novel by people as the beautiful country, um, as it's known in China. So I just wanted you to say something about the attraction of the beautiful country to Chinese immigrants. Well, I think that America is a dream for immigrants all across the world, even today. And indeed, in Chinese, we call it the beautiful country. That is a literal translation out of Chinese. In Jasmine's narrative, she is actually thinking in Chinese. So even though it reads to us as quite fluent English, and hopefully we can identify with her and feel her journey, she's actually speaking in Chinese, which is made apparent when we later on in the novel actually see her and hear her in English. And we realize, oh my goodness, she comes across in such a different way in English than she actually is in Chinese, that the exterior of the woman is very different from the interior. And that is a theme that also translates to Rebecca, the adoptive mother. Listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jean Kwok, and we're talking about her new novel, The Leftover Woman. And Jean, in the second half, we're going to talk about Rebecca then. So, Rebecca, a very different woman with a very different background to Jasmine. Tell us something about who she is when we meet her in the novel. Well, Rebecca is the adoptive mother, and indeed, she is really Jasmine's opposite in many ways. She has an affluent background, a high-powered career, a handsome husband, and an adopted Chinese daughter she adores. So that's something she and Jasmine have in common, that they both absolutely love their daughter. Uh, The novel, The Leftover Woman, is indeed about two mothers, two worlds, and one impossible choice. So Rebecca, you know, even though she is so different from Jasmine, is also very rooted in who I am because she, like so many modern women today, is trying to juggle all these balls and keep them up in the air. She's trying to be a career woman. She's trying to be a mother and a daughter and a partner. And she's not managing to do everything equally well. And no one blames her more harshly than herself. Tell us something more about her family background. Well, she comes from an affluent family. Um, Her father was a famous publisher. 
And so Rebecca herself also goes into the publishing world, which made this novel very fun to write as, you know, someone who is an author. So it's an insider's look at the very complex and crazy world of publishing as well. So she is a, a publishing executive, a top publishing executive. And when the novel opens, she is giving a beautiful, huge party in her mother's penthouse. And she's basically trying to recover from a publishing scandal because she published a book that did very well until it was discovered that the author had lied and plagiarized um, parts of the memoir. And so she is now desperately trying to recover her reputation by landing a new star author. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about you have a lot of fun with the publishing industry in the book, obviously, at this particular scandal, the plagiarism scandal. I wonder if that was based on any particular real life incident. Well, there are so many similar real life incidents, right? <laughs> so that this is not something that um, has happened only once in the history of publishing. We all know that stars can rise and fall extremely quickly in the publishing world, especially if scandal is attached. And uh, what's happened is that Rebecca is, you know, in danger of being dragged down by this book because there are accusations of why did the publisher not vet this book more carefully before it was brought into the world? So, yes, I think that this is really an insider's look at publishing at things like the Frankfurt Book Fair, where international rights are sold at auctions. So for people who are possibly writers themselves, it's a fun peek into how things work behind the scenes. Tell us something about Rebecca's husband, Brandon, who seems like a, a real catch. Yes. In fact, um, Rebecca says early on that their friends call them, uh, she and her husband, beauty and the brains, with her being the brains part. So he's the beauty. Uh, and he's not just beautiful. He is also, he is white, but he is a language prodigy and a professor of Chinese at Columbia. So he is fluent in Chinese. And in fact, in Rebecca's little family, he creates almost a small, tiny family with the adopted Chinese daughter, Fiona, and their Chinese-speaking nanny, Lucy, because they're all creating this microcosm of Chinese, and Rebecca feels left out sometimes. And this is something, it's a kind of inversion of what happens in many immigrant families, where the older generation immigrants are still stuck in the old original language, and the younger, the children, the second generation, have learned the newer language and are chatting and navigating the whole world in that language, while the parents can hardly follow along. And this kind of tragic abyss is created in a family between, you know, parents and children, for example. But this is turned on its head with Rebecca, the English speaker, feeling this in her own Chinese-speaking family. Yeah, so the novel is called The Leftover Woman, and one can presume on starting reading this, because this is about two women from very different backgrounds and about, a, you know, a particularly tragic occurrence that has happened to one of them, that Jasmine is the leftover woman of the title. But if we see Rebecca through that lens as well, it paints a very different picture of her that grows as we as we get to know her more 
because at the very beginning of the novel, it would be very easy to presume that this, you know, very privileged, very busy, very in some ways neglectful of her family woman is less likable than Jasmine. But certainly by by the end of the novel, maybe we will uh, we will change our mind on that without giving too much away. Well, I do hope that we do, because even though Rebecca certainly makes mistakes, so does Jasmine. And I love both women equally. And I feel that they both have a legitimate right to the child, that you cannot say that in every situation, the birth mother should have the child or that the adoptive mother should have the child. They both have very compelling arguments for why they deserve to have that daughter. So uh, indeed, I think that even though Rebecca does make mistakes and does seem neglectful, you know, she didn't ask to be born into privilege any more than any of us have asked to be born into poverty. And she's very aware of her privilege. And she's really, really doing her best to try to deserve her place in the world and to give back as much as she can, even though sometimes she might not succeed. I'm going to ask you to to read us a bit in a moment, if you would. But before we do, I mentioned at the beginning that this novel and one of your previous novels are in development for television. So I wonder how much you can tell us about what's happening with that. Yeah, actually, all of my novels. So all four of my novels are in development uh, for TV and film. So that is very exciting. I think that The Leftover Woman at this moment, they are mostly looking at making it into a streaming series for something like Netflix. Although some of the other works, it's not quite sure if they will make a motion picture out of them or a streaming series. Um, but yes, it's, uh, it's in excellent hands and I'm very excited to see what they do with the story. That's wonderful. So can I get you to finish this off with a reading then? Absolutely. So I'm going to read from chapter one, a little scene, and this is from when Jasmine is looking for work in the Chinese restaurant. A small man wearing a wrinkled gray suit, much too big for him, exited the kitchen and approached me. He looked as tired as his faded eyes. You looking for work? What's your name? I started to push my glasses up my nose, then realized I'd taken them off. I felt exposed without them, especially with the two women watching us. How many times had I already had this conversation? Could I trust him not to report me? Um, I'm a very hard worker. He barked out a laugh. Let me guess. You don't have the right papers and you want me to give you a job, even though you're too scared to even tell me your real name. Forget it. I can clean tables, waitress, serve dim sum. I'm dexterous and have a good memory. My heart was racing. I was talking too quickly. I couldn't return to China and my disastrous life there. I had passed the menu board on the way in. What had it said? Your specials today are braised pork and gravy, shrimp with vermicelli and garlic, and vegetarian crystal dumplings. He paused. Can you come in full time? A few nights a week. He shrugged. I have people lining up to work 24 hours a day, especially if they're in your situation. In my peripheral vision, I noticed both women perk up as a young man stepped past us on his way to the kitchen. He was hunched over, his head averted, as if trying to make himself less conspicuous. He wore a navy jacket with an elaborate emblem on the sleeve. A worn guitar case was slung over his back. 
The manager spotted him and erupted like a bulldog confronting a Doberman in the street. What do you think this is? A storage area? The beleaguered man took a deep breath but didn't stop. I'm so sorry. I'll stash the guitar. You won't notice. There was something familiar about his warm tenor that called to me. I didn't recognize the voice, rather the inflection of his Chinese, the rhythm of his words. I tended to avoid young men with their grabby hands and clinging eyes, but I was riveted to this one. His hair was dark and silky, the gleam of amber highlights visible even in the fluorescent lighting. Come here! The manager actually stomped his foot. The man slowly turned towards us, and when he caught sight of me, he froze. My heart lurched. I stared into a face that I both knew and didn't know at all. Two thick slashes of eyebrows, dusky skin, a square masculine face with eyes like melted chocolate, Anthony. He was etched into my soul and yet entirely new to me. I remembered gangly shoulders, a broad open grin, his thin fingers plucking on guitar strings while perched on the steps of his house, one of the largest in our village. Then his family moved away and it stood empty, with me staring into the blank windows day after day. How many times had we shared a package of uncooked ramen noodles before he left? sprinkling the seasoning on top so we could munch them like chips. My eyes rested upon the man, but my soul recognized a boy I hadn't seen in 10 years, my best friend when I was 14 years old. He was gaping at me. Then he whispered, it's you. So I've been talking to Jean Kwok. We've been talking about her new novel, The Leftover Woman, which is out now in the UK from Viper Books. Jean, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. I've enjoyed being on your podcast so much. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.